Thank you all for coming to this uh, presentation on Care and Counsel as Mission, a New Paradigm. You see the titles uh, New and Improved since what was in the, um, uh, the program, and I'll explain a little bit about that. Thanks for coming also, despite the fact that my picture wasn't in the program. I don't know what to say about that. I don't know whether that's positive marketing or negative marketing, but uh, I am a psychologist in private practice in Boston, Massachusetts, but also have been working for the past few years with an international team of mental health practitioners, researchers, and theologians around the question of how those as Christians who are involved in mental health can become even more deeply engaged with what God is doing in the world. And when I say those involved in mental health, counselors, psychiatrists, social workers, pastors, lay workers, and um, hence we've come up with the term care and counsel to try to broaden what we mean. And we certainly mean more than 50-minute than counseling hours in offices with leather couches. We mean more than that, even though my day job is 50-minute hours often, office, and I do have a leather couch in my office. But anyway, um, so we're looking at care and counsel as mission with this international team and how we as counselors and, and those involved in around issues of caring for people, suffering people, can be a witness to Christ, not just to other Christians, but to the whole world. And we're doing this under the auspices of the Lausanne movement, which you may have heard of. Lausanne is kind of an evangelical, international umbrella group of, of networks. Uh, and they have a congress about every 20 years. And the most recent one was in Cape Town, South Africa, in uh, last year in 2010. But the first one was in 1974, and it was out of that Congress that the uh, Lausanne Covenant came out, which is, was a, a statement about uh, how the, the worldwide church needs to work together. So this broad Lausanne movement uh, has really been very effective in um, diffusing some important innovations in world mission over the past 40 years. So, for example, in 1974, the uh, people group concept uh, really first kind of made its biggest splash at the Lausanne Congress in Lausanne, Switzerland. Uh, similarly, ideas about talking about holistic ministry and understanding more deeply the relationship between social action and acts of mercy and, uh, and evangelism um, these issues came to the fore through the Lausanne movement, which has been quite involved in facilitating the, the conversation around this. So there was a Congress in 74. There was a Congress in Manila in 1989. But at neither of those Congresses were Christian counselors or those involved in mental health as a group really kind of invited to sit down at table together with others involved in world missions. 
It was only for the first time in Cape Town that we had a group of Christian counselors, and we had workshops on Christian counseling and counseling as mission. And uh, there was a tremendous response to that. So first of all, I want to go over briefly the need for mental health resources and ministry to those who are suffering around the world. And these are, I'll go very quickly with these five kind of statistics-laden slides. Um, You'll be able to get this information in detail if you want it from our website, caringcouncilasmission.org. But just to show you the magnitude of the issues, because as we know, if you're in this room, you probably understand that mental health often, because of the stigma, the embarrassment, the misunderstanding that goes with it, often is underrepresented and undertreated. And, uh, and basically, folks just don't know exactly where to put it. Is it a medical issue, kind of, depending what's going on? Is it a spiritual issue? Usually there's a spiritual dimension. But mental health per se has really been not received the attention it needs to in terms of the level of really unprecedented suffering that we have in the world. So you see these figures, almost a half billion people affected worldwide and almost a million dying by suicide. And interesting for those of you who are uh, involved in primary care or other uh, health-oriented work, one in four visiting a health service has a mental health, neurological, or behavioral disorder. And just to go over some of these by, by broad categories, so these are the kind of standard psychiatric diagnoses, and you see the numbers that are involved. And again, all of this in detail is available on the website. Beyond the psychiatric diagnoses, we have all of the, the kinds of psychosocial issues that go with, with uh, HIV and AIDS. Uh, and in some places where more than 30% of the population is HIV positive, where life expectancy is reduced by 50%. Huge implications. Or for children, at-risk children. Almost a quarter of a million uh, becoming infected with HIV per month. Um, 25 million children becoming orphaned uh, by 2010. And we see other issues that we're very familiar with, all of which have mental health counseling, care and counsel implications. Street children, child laborers, exploitation and abuse, and children in armed conflict. At-risk people, adults, just to name the categories, refugees, drug users, victims of violence, victims of natural disasters, sexual abuse, uh, problems that the elderly have, and uh, learning difficulties. And these are categories that the World Health Organization has, has uh, put together. Marriage and family, and this is just one statistic from China. Uh, nearly 70% of Shanghai residents have family problems ranging from domestic violence, divorce, to quarreling. And uh, in addition to this kind of broad-based work that I do, 
Um, I accept, accept invitations to teach and do teaching on marriage and family primarily in Eastern Europe. Uh, but there is always an interest in this issue of marriage and family, tremendous need for teaching and training in this area, um, teaching that is um, culturally appropriate. And we'll talk more about that as we, as we go on. So to try to boil down all of these statistics, you know, who better to boil it down, I guess that pun was intended, who better than the World Health Organization, I guess. And, and the World Health Organization talks about the statistic called dailies, disability-adjusted life years. It's a, a number they have to try to get some handle on the, the kind of relative um, level of disability that occurs that's caused by different illnesses. And um, what they're saying in this, looking at the burden of disease via dailies can reveal surprising things about a population's health. For example, the WHO reported that uh, five of the ten leading causes of disability were psychiatric conditions. Psychiatric and neurologic conditions account for 28% of all years lived with disability, but only 1.4% of all deaths and 1.1% of years of life lost, meaning there's a lot of uh, morbidity with mental illnesses, not as much mortality compared to other illnesses. Thus, psychiatric disorders, while traditionally not regarded as more uh, as a major epidemiological problem are shown by consideration of disability years to have a huge impact on populations. If you'd like to see it put more simply, this is from an editorial in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Mental health is closely linked with virtually all global public health priorities. Put it even more simply, it's really important. I'm glad you're here. So, what about the level of resources that are available? And again, this is World Health Organization information. And um, these are this table shows the number of mental health professionals per hundred thousand people by region. And before we look at this, I want to say that I, want, I, I agree with Gill's presentation this morning. I very much resonated with it. And I'm not saying that strictly having more mental health professionals in the, in the way that the World Health Organization would look at that is the answer. But still, we have to say from a kind of justice, fairness perspective, uh, something is really out of kilter, as it is in many other ways, um, uh, in terms of, of other needs around the world, but particularly in terms of mental health, when you see that the resources in the United States are, uh, what, about uh, 300 times greater than in, a, than in Africa, for example. This shows you the disparity. Just this one metric. Well, what is, is there a question? Yes, how do I do that? I have someone help me. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thanks for asking. Um, well, what about Christian counselors and the role they play in the world? Um, 
I don't have a comparative slide that shows number of Christian counselors, Christian mental health workers per se. But I do have this diagram, which kind of looks like what I had for breakfast this morning. Um, and and the, the point of this diagram, which came up in a, in a conversation between Gary Collins, one of the kind of founding fathers of Christian counseling, and Fred Gingrich, who's at Denver Seminary myself. And, and we looked at these kind of three categories of, um, of work that Christian counselors and others do in the world. And the egg yolk, if I can keep the breakfast analogy going, uh, is the work that's done in support of missionaries and humanitarian workers. And this is called member care. And this is a very, very critical, important work that we take care of our own, that those who are on the front lines get good care. And fortunately, this area is very well organized, conferences, networks, newsletters, training, uh, graduate programs available in this area. And so it's, it's, it's this area that really is the most organized and developed of all the areas we'll talk about today. And by the way, probably the size of that egg yolk number-wise is about maybe 500,000 people worldwide. Um, the second circle we had, I suppose the egg white, uh, is the number of Christians in the world. And this is the efforts of pastors and Christian counselors helping Christians, not necessarily people involved in frontline missionary humanitarian work, but helping people in churches. And it is probably about uh, 2.2 billion Christians in the world. So this is the second circle. But the third circle, and this is where it gets really big, and this is where it gets really complicated, which is probably why we haven't made more progress in, in working in this circle, is the whole world, all of those. Um, you know, the world population, 7 billion or so now, um, who, uh, who suffer, uh, who may have different religious views than we do, may not have any religious views, but the question is, how do Christian caregivers, in an ethical, authentic way, witness sensitively and humbly by offering their services to those who, who want them, but to those who don't yet know Christ. How do we do that? And that is one of the major challenging areas that we're thinking about in care and counsel as mission. Basically, how do we as Christian counselors help those who don't know Christ? those with whom we don't have that commonality, but people who, who nevertheless are really suffering and, and looking for help from us. This area is very understudied and, and understaffed. So that this is an analysis of one of the major journals that, that uh, presents research on Christian Counseling and Psychology. This is the Journal of Psychology and Theology. The other major research journal I know of is the Journal of Psychology and Christianity. 
But this pie chart would look the same for both. And um, what you see is the little purple sliver there is the research in the past uh, 23 years that's been published on international underserved populations, which is what our team is focusing on. Uh, you see a little sliver of research on social justice, a little sliver of research on, on anything that is, is not a U.S. population. A study that was done on Welch Vickers was included in that sliver of research. Things on cultural issues. And you see the light blue area is member care. Now, the point of this is just to emphasize that um, there is very little research to date that's being done on how we work in underserved populations around the world. The big circle, as we would say in terms of care and counsel as mission. So our team began in 2009 in Mexico City, and this was a group that met for three days. And we began to think together theologically. We had a theologian with us. Uh, and look at things from a biblical perspective, uh, from a cultural perspective, from a clinical perspective, and begin to um, think about how to frame the issues before us before we could come up with any kind of specific ideas or recommendations. Those discussions continued after the Mexico City meeting into the Cape Town meeting last uh, uh, last October in Cape Town, and out of the Cape Town meetings came the document that you have in your hand, which is the Cape Town Declaration on Care and Counsel as Mission. And there are four major sections of this declaration, Christian, Holistic and Systemic, Indigenous, and Collaborative. Uh, there's more here. Does any, who, who does not have that? Yeah. Here you go. There's there's more here. So what I want to do with the time we have is um, left is to talk about the Cape Town Declaration, but also to show a couple video clips of people who are on the team. So you can hear some international voices of what we are envisioning that this broader paradigm of care and counsel as mission may look like in the future. The first section on Christian, we are committed as part of the global Christian church to follow Jesus in serving all people worldwide in order that they may flourish in every way, including psychologically and spiritually. So you just hear the scope of this is the point that I was making with the big circle, that we're talking about all people. We see what we do and what we can do as a witness to Christ, and that that's what we're called to do. We believe that true healing includes Reconciliation with God, oneself, one's neighbor, one's enemy, and creation through Christ. So you see the breadth of how we envision what true healing is. And for those of you who are involved in 
one-on-one counseling, you might just want to reflect on this as I did after this was written, reflected on my own practice and my own kind of ways of viewing the people that come to my office. And, and you know, I, I begin to use this more as, as kind of a, a guide and asking, you know, where is this person in terms of their relationship with their neighbor? Not just how are they doing internally, but in terms of relationships, including relationships with one's enemy, uh, which is a distinctively biblical concept and with creation. The second uh, section has to do with being holistic and systemic. God's creation reflects a design of interdependent systems, and so we are committed to a global understanding of the whole person system in the context of suffering and health. So you see that the, this framework is, is really emphasizing this idea of, of thinking more broadly, which is why I have a picture of a Siamese cat and a toaster. Um, a lot of the work that's been done on systems thinking since the 1960s was done in MIT in Cambridge, near where I work. But there was a group across the Charles River in Boston that had a very different mission in life rather than MIT. They were a Christian group called the Emanuel Gospel Center, and they were doing um, urban ministry. And they discovered that for all the right things that they were trying to do, quite often things didn't turn out the way that they expected. And so they began reading about systems thinking from people like Peter Senge, who wrote The Fifth Discipline, who's at MIT and others, and they began to think more systemically about urban ministry. And uh, Doug Hall, who heads the Emanuel Gospel Center, has written a book called The Cat and the Toaster. And the point he's trying to make is living systems are different than mechanical machines, and often we treat people and we treat organizations and churches kind of like a toaster where you can just go in and focus on one spot and fix it and, and, and nothing else is going to happen. There's no emotion involved. There's no feedback. There's, there's nothing else that happens. And, and Doug's making the point in this clever title, The Cat and the Toaster, that urban ministry and, and any ministry really with people in terms of the counseling we do is much more like working or, or having somebody help your cat when your cat is sick. You need to be very careful, and from the first minute, you need to think about how all of the systems of this living organism are tied together. It's a good book. Um, this also draws on Uri Bronfenbrenner's ecological theory, which you may have run across, just the idea that, that there are, that an individual has a number of systems around them. So we don't, and, and Bronfenbrenner was thinking particularly about children, but we don't think just about the child. We think about the parents. We think about the family, the school, the community, the nation, uh, the religious affiliation, uh, all of this. So we see that there's kind of these concentric circles of larger systems that we need to think about, and that these systems are moving through time, they are moving through history. And that if we're really going to be helpful in ways in the long term and do no harm, we need to think about all of, all of these systems and not just think about um, 
the person individually. So why is this all important and why, uh, you know, why am I kind of going to pains to talk about this? And it involves some true confessions that very early, 20 years ago, when I, you know, was flattered by receiving invitations to teach overseas, I would take my PowerPoint presentation, have PowerPoint would travel, and I would teach how you do parenting. Or I would, I would uh, you know, teach about individual problems without really understanding uh, enough what was going on in the culture. And I've learned to work much more collaboratively. And I remember one time uh, in the Ukraine where I was teaching on leaving and cleaving and early marriage and how important it is, all these great concepts we know about, separation and differentiation and, and be careful of enmeshment and create some time. Uh, separate uh, and, and, and boundaries and all the books on boundaries. I was teaching all this to this Ukrainian audience. And a student finally raised his hand. He said, uh, Dr. Smith, I'm kind of paraphrasing. I hate to tell you this, but, you know, we're poor over here. When we get married, we live with our families like in a one-room apartment. So, you know, whatever you're saying about leaving and cleaving, you know, needs to work here. Powerful lesson I learned. So I'd like to, to give an example of kind of the holistic and systemic perspective by introducing you to the Cruz family, a remarkable family. They're all psychologists and social workers who've lived among the poor in Mexico City for 20 years. And ask yourself how, um, how, how they work and what you're hearing is different than maybe what you, you kind of expect you know, is this what you expect when you hear about Christian counseling? And uh, just notice how they work, especially in terms of holism uh, and working systemically. This is, I think, a couple minutes long. Telling them the good news of Jesus Christ through stories and songs. In this way, the community center became a transformation space in which individual lives and a whole community were changed. So you're, you're seeing in this clip um, much more of a, a kind of community psychology um, um, social work model of, of uh, working. And just quickly, some things about systems thinking. Um, thinking in terms of circles rather than direct cause and effect. Uh, the harder you push, the harder the system pushes back. Any of you who've tried to to work with a couple have experienced that probably. Unintended consequences, and especially if we don't understand the culture, if we don't understand what's going on behind the scenes, the kind of harm that we can do. Um, you know, there's a great book uh, called Crazy Like Us. Uh, has anyone heard of that book? Anybody read that book, Crazy Like Us? Basically, the premise of the book is that... Uh, uh, the Western mental health system in some ways has been importing uh, some psychiatric disorders because uh, there's a great story. You come to Japan and uh, 
studying your case and the psychiatrist says, oh, that's anorexia nervosa, which gets picked up in the universities and all of a sudden anorexia nervosa becomes, is something that's a, a reality in Japan. Now, am I, I saying that all of this causes eating disorders in Japan? No, I'm saying, though, that the way that we could label things or, or suggest that there are only certain ways of treatment. Um, I'm concerned the same thing about trauma and the ways that we assume that uh, in disaster situations or in cases of interpersonal violence that we can expect that people in other cultures will follow a DSM-4 diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder and we teach them and provide that Western framework. Rather, that's rather than that is what's really going on. And at the same time, we may suggest Western treatment methods which are not the most appropriate for that culture. And at the same time, in presenting ourselves as kind of the experts who have just flown in from the United States or somewhere else in the West, uh, we can devalue the resources that people have in their own culture. You know, the folks in, in Sri Lanka before the tsunami had experienced... Uh, you know, many centuries of suffering, and God was already at work in Sri Lanka uh, before the teams that came to, uh, to help with trauma were there. Um, so uh, some of the unintended consequences, the fact that cause and effect are not closely related in time and space, um, that working, if something looks too easy, uh, there's probably more to it, um, that many, usually it takes um, time to work slowly rather than uh, quick solutions, and that some of the experience we may find, some of the pushback we may get, some of the rejection we may feel when people from other cultures are not as receptive to some of our ideas, that rather than looking at that as some kind of blame uh, or some kind of lack of openness that we understand from a systemic perspective um, uh, how people are, are uh, and respect people and how they're wanting to preserve their own culture and their ways of understanding things. Just to give a quick example on systems thinking again from the cruises, the question, why are couples in Mexican villages not getting married? Anybody have an idea why couples in... Mexican villages often don't get married. What's that? Weddings are expensive, as I'm discovering with my son getting married in February. But anyway, at least it's not a daughter. Anyway, um, but, but in a small Mexican village, not only are, are weddings relatively, in a poor village, not only are weddings expensive, but it's a huge kind of social statement of, of how much of a grand wedding a person is able to afford. It, it, it reflects on the family. Uh, it reflects on the bride and the groom. And so there can be a lot of shame if a couple is not able to kind of throw a very lavish wedding. So instead, people don't get married. And Saul and Pilar noticed this. So what did they do? Did they develop training seminars, campaigns on just say no to not getting married? No. Instead, what they did is they began to work with the community, very clever, and they developed community weddings. 
and, and uh, by working with the couples and the resources in the community, um, they were able to find physicians and labs that would, would, would donate their time to the blood tests and all that. And they found ministers who would donate their time. And the whole village would, would get together and, and prepare food and decorate the transformation center. And it would be multiple couples getting married at the same time. And instead of a, a time of shame and embarrassment, it became a time of community celebration because they thought about it systemically and they thought about it holistically. Section 3 of the Declaration talks about uh, indigeneity, this idea of realizing that God has already placed in cultures uh, resources, um, that he's already at work in cultures. Not everything that is in a culture is from God, but there are things that God, through, through his, his grace and his love, have given his resources into cultures and to, to discover those things and to be able to include them as part of, uh, as part of a, a way to help people. Uh, so this is a clip of Dr. Gladys Mwiti from Nairobi, Kenya, who's teaching on this idea of indigeneity. Uh, she's a clinical psychologist, graduate of Fuller Seminary. Um, Fuller has, a, she's, she and, and uh, Dr. Al Duick, who are both on our team, have produced a book and a DVD, and this is from the DVD, uh, entitled African Christian Counseling, uh, an Indigenous Christian Perspective, something like that as a title. has some... some uh, I think ideas you'll find interesting and maybe provocative. So this is Gladys Mwitty. If some of those ideas seem a little strange and provocative to you, um, that's how they sounded to me, too. It's, uh, this, is, this is why we need collaboration and why uh, the development of Care and Counsel as mission globally needs to be not a importation teaching model of Western ideas with maybe a little touch of cultural sensitivity, but to really uh, to be able to engage with others around the world where we can think biblically and theologically, psychologically, sociologically, culturally uh, about uh, the ways to help people in different cultures of the world. Uh, so collaboration is the model we're looking at. Just as I end here, and I'll, I'll hang around for a few minutes to take some questions or comments, but uh, this is the website. Uh, there's more information on the declaration. There's bibliographies having to do with each section of the, uh, of the declaration. Or if you'd like to email me, um, smithbrad at aol.com is the email. So I will, uh, I'll be here to talk some more about this, and thanks so much for coming.